All right. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. The beginning of what we call the Holy Week. You know, maybe you grew up in a tradition where you got the palms handed out to you coming in and all the kids poked each other with them the whole service. Tried, you had to like sit between the brothers and the sisters and keep palms from going into eyeballs. We didn't do that to you today. Uh, but it is Palm Sunday. It's an important day. It's, this is the beginning of what we call the Holy Week or the, the Passion Week. And what I want to do this morning is really just talk about Palm Sunday and what it is and why it matters and what Jesus really wanted uh, on that day. So today uh, is the day that we celebrate the time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. He was entering into Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Passover in Temple Judaism, Passover was one of the main festivals that was celebrated throughout the year. There were a number of them, and during these times, because of the system that they, uh, the system that they had of worship, uh, everybody would come to Jerusalem for these festivals. The reason why is because in those times, the presence of God existed inside the temple of God. There was an Ark of a Covenant inside of there, and the presence of God was resting on that Ark. And so that was where all of the religious life took place. You had to worship at the temple in order to be near to the presence of God. It was also a great party, don't you know? It was a good time. All these festivals in the city. The city would swell to ten times its normal population on days like Passover. Passover was considered the second most important of the holy days there in Jerusalem. And so it was one where almost everybody would turn out. They would come up to Passover festival. So Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for Passover festival, which was a normal thing for him as a Jewish man. But this time was different from other times. Now, Passover, the Passover festival is a very significant and special holiday as well. And there's a reason why Jesus' final trip into Jerusalem coincides with Passover. If you have never seen the cinematic masterpiece that is the Prince of Egypt and you don't know about the Passover, I give you a quick primer. Uh, The Passover celebrates the Exodus story of the final plague of God. Uh, that God sent this final plague to Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to release the Israelites. And it was the angel of death sent to claim the firstborn children of Israel. Pretty dark stuff. If you haven't seen the movie, these people, God's people, the Israelites, had been living under captivity and slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God had sent this man, Moses, he called him up and prepared him and sent him to deliver them from captivity and into freedom, from slavery and into freedom and to guide them to the promised land, this land that God had declared he was going to give them. This this is the area that now is where Jerusalem is. And, And so this was... It was like a big tension moment where there had been a bunch of plagues already. And every time there was a plague, Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, baby, let my people go. And then the people would... would wait anxiously and Pharaoh would say no I'm not going to do it and he kept saying no and no and no and then finally this last plague came it was this horrible plague this plague of the angel of death and so in order to protect his people God told the Israelites to slaughter a lamb a sacrificial lamb and to paint its blood on their doorposts and that blood the blood of this special sacrificial lamb would tell the angel of death to pass them over so that they would be spared on this night 
And so at the festival of Passover, they're remembering the moment that God spared them by, by the blood of the lamb, telling that angel to pass them over in death. This is important because Jesus became our new Passover lamb. That in the story of Jesus, we see a lot of callback. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, we see moments that are prophesying the very coming of Jesus and what he was going to do for us. Passover being one of those moments. And so it's the Passover festival and a lot of people, it's a big deal. There's millions of people, thousands of people in Jerusalem who don't normally live there. And at this point, we're three years into the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus is pretty well known at this time. In fact, the name of Jesus is known pretty much everywhere in the region and to most Jewish people. People don't really know what to think about Jesus. Even now, we're three years into his ministry. They're still, they're still trying to figure it out. I mean, they'd heard rumors. They knew that he was a healer and that he had healed people. They, everybody knew somebody whose aunt had been healed by Jesus. You know, they were like, oh yeah, I heard I was getting my hair did the other day. And, and I heard Rebecca, she said that her sister-in-law's sister actually got healed by Jesus, had the leprosy. Don't have it no more. People are hearing all these things and they're like, what? They've heard the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. They've already made their way around the region of Judea. The Samaritans have even heard that Jesus brought the gospel, his message to them. And there, there's all kinds of talk about this Jesus in the land. They're trying to figure out what they should think about him at this time. That, that some people, there's kind of three camps. Some people believe he's a prophet and an important prophet. They had not had a prophet in hundreds of years. They, they thought maybe God has gone silent. They, they had not had a period of hundreds of years of silence without a prophet as long as they could remember. And so the people were starting to get anxious and they're thinking maybe Jesus is this prophet of God. Maybe he's coming even, maybe he's even the prophet that's going to declare that the Messiah is coming. They believe maybe, maybe that's who he is. Some people, they thought, well, maybe Jesus is just a blasphemer. You know, he's here. He's teaching things that are upsetting our religious order, the way that we understand our religion. And there are people that, and they're scattered throughout the crowds that they don't want Jesus coming anywhere near the temple in Jerusalem. And then there's a group of people that think maybe, just maybe, this Jesus is the Messiah. But their understanding of Messiah is a little bit off. See, all throughout the Old Testament, these prophets, they would speak of the coming of the Messiah. And they would often speak of the Messiah in military terms. That he was coming to deliver them from oppression. That he was coming to set the captives free. That, that he was going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And all this imagery made them think of their King David. That they knew that the Messiah would be a son of David. And that he would continue the lineage of King David. Well, David, the David and Goliath David, maybe you know. David was a warrior king. He was known for freeing the Israelites from the Philistines. He was constantly winning wars for Israel. And he had fought so many battles that God said, I'm not going to let you build the temple I'm revealing to you. I'm going to have your son build it because, David, you've got too much blood on your hands. And so they thought this Messiah would be like King David. And he was going to come and he was going to rescue them because they had been living for the last 70 years under Roman rule. And for the several hundred years before that, first under the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, they had been living under oppression once again for five, six hundred years. 
So they thought, surely this Messiah, as he comes to us, is coming to fight a battle and a war to deliver us from the oppression of the Romans that we might be our own sovereign nation again. So there are people expecting a prophet. There are people expecting a king. And then there are people who believe he's just here telling lies and spreading dissension amongst the Jewish people. And so on top of all that, just maybe a few weeks, maybe even a few days before Jesus showed up into Jerusalem, he did his biggest miracle yet. He called a man who had been buried, dead and buried for four days out of the ground. He showed up and he said, Lazarus, come out. And this guy, Lazarus, walked out of the tomb just fine. Like, what's everybody all upset about? What's going on around here? And Lazarus and Jesus, on the day before Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, are hanging out at Lazarus' house in Bethany. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. If you grew up in church, maybe you know about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's an important family in the Gospels and friends of Jesus and Jesus is at their house just hanging out reclining but it said that so many people crowded around because they heard that Jesus was there and they just wanted to get a peek at Lazarus they're like wait a minute was this guy dead is he a zombie we need to know we have to see him does he look weird is he normal they're trying they're all trying to catch a peek at Jesus and Lazarus having a meal together to the point where Jesus has to slip out the back he's like yo I gotta go I gotta dip it's a little, a little bit too hot in here for me he goes out and, and this is just the day before he enters into Jerusalem so the buzz is big and so Jesus coming into Jerusalem is this moment that the whole city is bubbling up and waiting for. There, there is a tension that is palpable all throughout the city. They want to catch a glimpse of his celebrity. They want, to, they want to speculate on who he is. They want to see what he looks like. Is he taller than me? They're wondering all of these things as Jesus gets ready to enter into the city. So let's read the story from Matthew chapter 21. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, They approached Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethphage, 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 I don't know, on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. You can try this even still today if you want to borrow a horse or a car. The Lord needs it. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 that Jesus is about to fulfill. Verse 6, Jesus, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now, why is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Didn't he already walk all this way? He walked this whole time, and all of a sudden he's too tired to walk just like the next 300 feet into the city? Is, is Jesus a prima donna? What is happening here? Why is, is, Jesus, why is Jesus suddenly riding a donkey? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus is riding this donkey with the colt as a fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies while he was on earth. The, the, the odds of anyone fulfilling that amount of old thousands of years of prophecy 
It's astronomical. He fulfills all these prophecies. And the majority of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills, they're a little bit obscure. Only the biggest scholars of the day would have known about them. The scribes, some of the religious, even half the Pharisees probably didn't even know most of these prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling. But there were some that anybody would know. Any kid who grew up in Sunday school knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Any kid who grew up in Bethlehem was going to know these certain little things about Jesus, about the Messiah. And one of those more common prophecies was that Jesus was going to enter into the city of Bethlehem on a colt, uh, on a donkey with its colt beside it. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is proclaiming publicly to all the people who are looking, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. Because it's a specific prophecy. He's not just riding in on a donkey. He's got the little baby donkey right here. I mean, what's the baby donkey all about? Is that to prop his feet up on? Or does he put his backpack on the baby donkey? What's the baby donkey for? It's part of this fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, until this moment throughout the Gospels, there are multiple times where Jesus teaches to large numbers of people, even in the thousands. And in none of those teachings does he proclaim or declare to those groups, I am the Messiah. He never says that. There are a few times he's asked if he's the Messiah. And he gives kind of an obscure answer where he, he, he says yes, but he, sa- he says yes, don't tell anybody. Or he says, you have said it, not me. Or he says, you, what you have said here. I'm, Peter, he's asking his disciples, who do you think I am? The 12 guys that followed him around, we're all thinking these guys, they knew, they knew what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you think I am in the final year of his ministry? And half of them are like, we think you're a great dude, Jesus. We love your hair. And we're going to follow you because we have nowhere else to go. And they say, maybe you're a prophet. You're a great teacher. And one of his disciples, Peter, and Peter's the crazy one. Peter goes, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the powers of hell won't prevail against it. And so until this moment, he hasn't put it on the billboard that he is the Messiah. Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the donkey with the colt beside her. This is his moment that he says, I am the one you have waited for. I am your king. I am the Messiah who has come to deliver you, to rescue you, and to walk you into the next part of your life. I am the Messiah. And it's significant that it is a donkey and not a horse. Because in those days, a king would either enter a city on a horse or on a donkey. If a king entered into a city on a horse, he was coming into that city to declare war upon it. Violence would follow him. But if he entered into the city on a donkey, he was coming in humility and bringing a declaration of peace. And so in this moment, Jesus is saying to every person who expects him to bring violence and war, I am your Messiah and I am bringing you peace. And so it's a big deal when he comes rolling in on this donkey. Let's get back into it. Verse eight, it says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees. These are the palms from Palm Sunday. It's the branches from the trees. And they spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred by it. It was electric. It said, who is this? And the crowds answered, that, that's Jesus. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus then entered into the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of the people selling doves. And in verse 12, I think we get the understanding of the heart of Jesus as he walks into the Hosea's and the palm branches and the carpet of cloaks. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Palm Sunday was a crowd of people yelling Hosanna and welcoming Jesus like the king that he is. But they don't understand who he is. Because even when they're asked who they were welcoming, there's people, there's just a huge crowd of people and they're all shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then there's a guy and he's like, what is going on? You know, he's the all morning. Everyone's been acting weird. He's been trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And then finally he asked him, he's like, who is this guy? What's with the donkey? And they're like, that's Jesus. He's a prophet from Galilee. They declare him as the prophet from Nazareth, not the king from Bethlehem. Jesus is so impressed by the laying down of their palm branches that he immediately goes to their temple and flips over all the tables of the money changers and makes a whip and starts whipping people out of there. Jesus, he does. He goes wild on them. Because nobody in the temple understood who they were worshiping either. And so the week unfolds. Jesus has the Last Supper on Thursday. That is the moment where he has the Passover Seder with his followers on Passover. And as he's having this meal, he's changing the meaning of it. That unleavened bread that was supposed to represent the Israelites walking into freedom from Egypt, their deliverance, the moment they were freed. Jesus says, now this actually represents my body, which is going to be broken for you so that you can know what real freedom feels like. And he passes the wine around and his disciples drink from the cup. And he says, this, this doesn't represent, no longer does this wine represent the blood of the lamb painted on your doorpost, but rather it le- represents my blood, which is going to be spilled out for you as I become your sacrificial lamb so that you might not experience death. And he transforms this feast for them. And he says all kinds of important stuff. There's important teachings that happen uh, all night on Thursday night. And then finally they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's there in that space where Jesus is arrested. After he's been in prayer. And he's tried all night long. And the moment that he's arrested, even his disciples scatter. They all run away. They hide. They're just not really sure what to do at this point. They weren't prepared for this. Most of them thought maybe... Jesus is going to be a military leader, and now it doesn't look that way. So what do we do? Even Peter, who declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, is now telling middle school girls that he doesn't know who Jesus is. So Jesus is tried all night long, and then in the morning, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And at 8 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus has walked out in front of a crowd crowd is there uh, because each Passover time, it's a tradition for the governor of Jerusalem, the Roman governor, to release a prisoner that the Roman government is holding. 
And that's a tradition. And so Pilate has been trying Jesus and trying to find some kind of fault within him. He's hoping that, man, there's got to be something about this Jesus, you know, that's, that's off, that I can punish him and do what the people want me to do. But as he's interviewing Jesus, he's thinking, this guy is innocent. So he brings him out and he chooses as his opposition uh, a prisoner who was well known for his violence. He was a freedom fighter and a terrorist. And he was trying to oppose the Roman government through terrorist acts. But oftentimes regular people would get caught up in the violence and get wounded and hurt. And He'd been arrested for insurrection and murder. And Jesus Barabbas was his name. And he's on this side. And over here is Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate's like, I'm going to set you up a softball pitch. Which one of these guys do you want to go free? And he's expecting the people to say, give us Jesus of Nazareth. But instead, the same people who shouted Hosanna in the highest begin shouting Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And Pilate goes, are you sure? I can't find any fault in this man, Jesus. And they say, give us Barabbas. And he releases him. And then he says, what should I do with this man, Jesus and the same people who were laying down their palm branches begin laying down accusations, shouting them out. And then all of the crowd turns into a singular chorus. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So how in five days do we go from Hosanna Hosanna in the highest to crucify him. The reality is on Palm Sunday, the people didn't understand what they were laying down. They wanted Jesus in their city, but they did not want him to change their lives. They were comfortable with their status quo. They wanted a Messiah because they didn't want the Romans to tell them what to do. They wanted a Messiah in their government, but not in their hearts. On Sunday, after he cleared out the temple and made it clear that this was a house of worship and a house of God, not a place for you to sell your wares and to take advantage of people, he stood up and he started to preach and prophesy. And he said that, I tell you, God is going to tear this temple down brick by brick and rebuild it in three days. People did not like that. Because on Palm Sunday, just after they had hailed him as king, He had come and told them that he was going to shake up everything that they knew. They didn't want what they knew being shook up. They liked things the way that they were. They thought things were okay. They just didn't want the government telling them what to do. Jesus was trying to help people understand that God was about to redefine his relationship with humanity through his death and resurrection. All the people heard was that serious change was coming and they didn't want anything to do with it. So when they had the opportunity to free a violent freedom fighter or this prophet Jesus, they chose the violent man. Here's what I want to communicate today for Palm Sunday. Jesus doesn't want you to lay down palm branches. He doesn't want you to invite him into your government, but not into your heart. He doesn't want you to follow his celebrity, but not his teachings. He doesn't want you to do it because your friends are doing it or because it's convenient to do it. He wants to change every part of your life by leading you down a drastically different path in life than the one you started on. And he wants to call you to a greater purpose than even you could imagine. 
And so here's three things for Palm Sunday today. Number one, what are you laying down? What are you laying down on Palm Sunday? The people gathered along the streets of Jerusalem uh, were there for the most part to see a celebrity, a healer, a great teacher. Some of them had heard and hoped that he was the Messiah, but few of them understood what they meant by that. At this point, Jesus had taught many times about how if anyone wanted to follow him, they needed to take up their cross first and follow him. He explained that the kingdom of heaven, and he explained it in many different ways, and told them the kingdom of God is a kingdom of humility, and it's a kingdom of love, and it's a a kingdom where everything that you understand is upside down. He told them these things, and yet they still hoped he would be a Messiah who would deliver them physically in a military sense, or that he would bring something that they could add to their religion, but not that he was going to change it altogether. It was a common belief that the Messiah would be like Moses and David put together. Moses came and physically delivered the people from a physical oppressor. And so because of the prophecies, that's what they understood. That's what they were hoping for, but it's not what they got. What they got was a whole lot better. But they couldn't see that. All they could see was that it was going to make their lives in many circumstances harder to follow Jesus Jesus, rather than easier. And that was tough for people. They were willing to lay down palm branches. They weren't willing to lay down their lives. There's a man who comes to Jesus before this and wants to follow him as a rabbi, but he isn't ready to lay down what Jesus is asking for. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. He says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. He was always redirecting in humility to try to help people understand how to worship and show honor to the Father. Jesus says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And and then the man said to him, teacher, I've done all of these things uh, from my youth. I've always followed the Ten Commandments. So looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell you all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This is a crucial story in the gospel message because it illustrates something that would keep people from really entering into full relationship with Christ and unlocking the purpose he has from them from that point all the way up until today. There are so many of us who are just willing to add church to our lives. We're willing to add a little bit of religion to our lives. We see and feel a need for spiritual satisfaction. We want our kids to grow up in church because we think that's good for their morality or something along those lines. So we get our kids in church or we, we think maybe this is a good spot, maybe just to meet some people. So we show up for some social gatherings. We're willing to do those things. So we come to Jesus with the same negotiation that this man did. If I give you a little bit of this, will you give me what you have? If I bring you this and this and this, is that going to be good enough? If I follow these rules and make sure that I look and act this way, is that okay, Jesus? This guy, he was really good at religion. 
But Jesus wasn't looking for religion. This guy had followed everything well. But Jesus didn't ask him to follow religion well. He came for something else entirely. And this young man, he just doesn't get it. He's not willing to release control over his life. He wants to follow Jesus as much as it is convenient for him. As much as he's comfortable with. He wants a religion to practice, not a relationship to build. And that's the truth about these people laying down their palm branches on Palm Sunday. They want the blessing, but they're not willing to make any kind of sacrifice. And in God's economy, sacrifice always precedes the blessing. Jesus gets to the city on Palm Sunday and he looks out over it. It's in Luke chapter 19. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus knew that all the worship they were about to give him was not enough because their words were going to change to crucify him before a week had passed. He understood that he was bringing them an opportunity to experience life better than they'd ever dreamed of it before. A satisfaction that they had never even been able to grasp in this world before. He was coming to bring them a peace that he desired for them. As it says right here. And when he showed up to Jerusalem knowing that this city was about to turn on him, it says that he wept. Not for himself, for them. Just like in that passage with that young man who wasn't willing to give up what he possessed. When Jesus tells him that you lack one thing, Jesus knows that this guy's not going to be willing to give it up. But right before it says that he says that, he says, and Jesus loved him. Or he showed him love and he said to him, you still lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and then come and follow me. It is an act of compassion that Jesus is bringing to this man to call him to give up everything to follow him. Because he knows that the greatest version of this young man's future is to be willing to lay down all of it in pursuit of Jesus. And he looks out over Jerusalem and knows the same thing for everyone in there. And when he doesn't, he knows they're not going to grasp it, he just begins to weep. And he gives this prophecy that would come true in 70 AD when Rome would sack Jerusalem and they would tear the temple down and the city would end up in shambles. It would never be the same again. Jesus knew all that was coming. So he prophesies about it and he weeps over the palms that they're about to lay down in front of him. Because they just don't get it. So what are you laying down before Jesus today? Are you laying down some of your time? Some of your finances? Some of your gifts? Some of your purpose? Your dreams? Your calling? Are you giving him your religious devotion? But not the relationship that he really desires. Because what does Jesus want? That's the big question. If he doesn't want our palm branches, if he doesn't want our hosannas, what does he really want? What does Jesus ask of us? 
Maybe you're in here and you're thinking through this season and maybe you just walked through this series that we just did this six week series called Live No Lies. And maybe you've come through that and decided you need more of Jesus because you want the fulfillment that he brings and the peace that he brings and the blessing that he brings and the joy that could come from somewhere deep down inside of you, even on your darkest days that you know could come from a relationship with Jesus and you want that, but you're not really sure what's the, what's the way to get there. Because you don't want to be one of these people yelling Hosanna on Sunday and crucify him on Friday. So what does Jesus ask? Well, what he asks is very simple. It's just not very easy. Luke chapter 9. And you've got to get the uh, picture of Jesus right for this passage. Luke 9 verse 57 is where we'll start. When Jesus is speaking to this young man, the, the rich young ruler is what the Bible, the NIV people call him on the little headline. And when he's speaking to him and he tells him to go and sell everything, he's not doing it in a sassy way. It's not, Jesus can and sometimes is a little bit sassy. In these scenarios, he's not. It's not a, well, why don't you go sell everything and then follow me? No. It's not it. His heart is broken. And he's showing love and compassion. And when he communicates what he communicates here, he is saying it because he deeply wants people to experience the life that he has prepared for them. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds have the air. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What Jesus asked us to lay down and to be willing to lay down is everything, our lives, our past, our present, our future. He asks us to trust him with our plans, our purpose. He asks us to surrender our desires to him, to trust him with all of it. In fact, he says in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He had not yet walked the pathway to Calvary. Jesus hadn't picked a cross up yet. All the people knew about crosses was that they were symbols of death. It didn't make a lot of sense, but the message was clear. I want everything. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake would save it. And so here's what we have to understand. Jesus has asked us to lay our lives down, all of ourselves, everything. He wants you to sacrifice yourself, to commit to living a life where you don't look out for number one. This whole world is telling you to look out for number one, that at the center of your life should be me. I need to follow my truth. I need to do what's right for me. I need to serve me. I gotta look out for me. If I don't look out for me, who's gonna look out for me? I gotta do it all. I gotta do it all for me. Jesus says, I want you to not live that way. And instead of living for you, I want you to live for me. Put Jesus in the center, not me. He wants you to live a life where you look out for others first, not number one. 
He wants you to be generous, not greedy. He wants you to pursue wisdom through prayer and scripture. Not the kind of wisdom that impresses people. He wants you to follow him completely. And he makes this ask of you knowing that it's what's best for you. It's the only way you can finish this life with full satisfaction and joy, knowing that you've lived it well. Because in verse 25, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Or in another version, it says loses his soul. The most successful people in the world I've noticed are usually the saddest people in the world. I like watching celebrity documentaries because it always supports my worldview. These people who have everything, the most record sales of all time, the, the greatest sports players of all time, all these, all these achievements that man is clamoring for, the kids are idolizing. They're all so sad. There's a, a documentary about Tiger Woods. It's incredible. It's on HBO. And throughout this film, you're seeing why his life fell apart because he gave everything that he had to being the best at this sport, golf, and he is the greatest who will ever live. No doubt about it. But it cost him everything. Have you seen a picture of Tom Brady lately? He's not looking good. He wanted more and more and more, and it cost him everything. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, divorced his wife of 25 years, the mother of his four children, because it wasn't enough. The most successful people in this world are typically the saddest. Why? Because Jesus knows. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The things that we think we need are not the real things that we need. And Jesus knows that. So he's asked us to lay down more than just palm branches. He's asked us to lay down our very lives for him. And so that's number three. On Palm Sunday, as we read this story of these people shouting and celebrating and praising and laying down palm branches, what Jesus truly wants from us is that we would lay it all down. That we would lay it all down for him. Just a few days after Jesus was welcomed into the city like a king, he was hung up on a cross. And the sign that Pilate had been put on his cross said, king of the Jews, mocking him. Jesus was willing to lay his whole life down for us. What God is asking you to do, he has already done on your behalf. First John chapter four says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here we get this image. It's the same image that these people had in Jerusalem that if we're gonna get close to God, we gotta work hard to get close to God. We gotta fight to the front of the crowd there so that we can shout Hosanna the loudest, so that we can lay our cloak down and it can be seen and, and that, that Jesus would trample over our clothes. We gotta work, we gotta follow the rules, we gotta do everything right. I gotta make sure that I'm going through the list and I'm, I'm hitting every mark because I wanna matter, I wanna be important. I want God to see me. And maybe if I, if I do enough, I'll be noticed by him. I'll be loved by him. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the whole story of God is pointing to this one moment where Jesus would come into this city where he would be mocked, where he would, ha- where he would be arrested and beaten and betrayed and crucified and killed. And all of it would happen because he loved you so deeply that he was willing to make the first move. He loved us first. And yeah, he's asked you to lay your life down for him, to be willing to give up everything to follow him, to be willing to be, to sacrifice your physical life to follow him. He's asked you to be willing to lay down your finances. He's asked you to be willing to lay down your dreams, to lay down your purpose, to lay down the plans that you have. He's asked you to be willing to lay down your relationships, to be willing to lay down the way you thought it was going to go. He's asked you to lay it all down. But he laid his life down first to show you that it would be worth it. And so lay it all down. Lay down your time. Don't hold on to your time like an idol and protect it away from God. I don't know if I have time to pray, to study him, to learn his ways, to learn a new discipline of his spirit. I got a lot going on. The baseball season just kicked off. I'm busy. Work is nuts right now. I got to get up early already. Lay down your time. Lay down your dreams. Because you might find that the dreams that God has for you are bigger and better than the ones you have for yourself. Don't be afraid to lay down your finances. God talks about the principle of the first and the principle of the tithe in Scripture, not because God is trying to store up temples full of gold somewhere. He's not interested in that. It's because God knows that for many of us, the thing that stands in between us and complete surrender to him is our money. We hold on to it with a tight fist that becomes a God to us. What happens if we turn it into an open palm? What could he do? Be willing to lay down your relationships, your purpose. It's all worth it. James, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. Do you, do you know that what you think is good, what we cling to, shifts and changes with time? The people that we think we need to cling to, sometimes those relationships turn into betrayal. The priorities that we have, they move every couple of years. The possessions and the position that we're clamoring for, those people will turn on us. See, everything that we want that is of this world, it shifts and moves like sand. But God is different. We lay it down in pursuit of him. It says that he never changes. He never moves. He doesn't shift like shadows in the sun. He remains the same. When you surrender to him, you are pursuing a God who will never leave you or forsake you who would never give up on you, who would never change his opinion about you, no matter what you say or do, who would love you the same and who would love you first. And so we respond the way that Paul responds, one of my favorite passages, and I'll leave it here. Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. 
I kneel before him because he is my king and he is worthy of my kneeling. He is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my worship. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The temple isn't where the spirit of God is anymore. It dwells within us. And when we submit ourselves to him completely, lay our whole lives down for him, his spirit and power dwell within us through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp that you just might even begin to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses understanding, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He isn't asking you to lay it all down because he wants to take from you. We hold on to our one little thing because we think it's, we gotta, can't give God everything. This is mine. But God just wants you to open up your hands so that he can give you something bigger and something greater. He's trying to give something to you. The fullness of God. And so now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you're in this space today and you are ready to enter into that relationship. You're ready to lay it all down. He is ready to receive you. Right now, there, there's, not a, there's not a single person in this room who is beyond this moment. Maybe you have had some Jesus in your life, but you've only been laying down palm branches, and now it's time to lay down everything. Or maybe you, you've not had any of it, and now you're just amazed, and you, you want him in your heart and in your life. It only begins with a conversation. And the journey goes from there. So if you're ready for that today, every head bowed, every eye closed, just say this prayer with me and we'll get it started. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Forgive me for not giving you everything. I lay it all down before you today. I give you my heart, my life, my future, my past, my present, my dreams, everything. I give it all to you. Come into my heart, change me, make me more like you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.